Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I sit down with James Sebastino, who is the main protagonist and character in the film Chasing the Present, which is a beautiful documentary that showcases James confronting his issues with anxiety um, and isolation and loneliness and traveling the world to find answers, to find healing, and in the process, speaking with some incredible people like Russell Brand, Gary Weber, Graham Hancock, Alex Gray, Sharon Salzberg, and many more. Um, The film is also really beautifully shot, so it's a pleasure to watch. And there are some really potent moments in this film that really shed light into what is important, what is what is true. And um, seeing James go through this journey was really inspiring. And I reached out to him right away after watching this film. I really wanted to chat with him. And um, definitely had a lot of experiences in common and um, really related to his story, working in marketing in New York and... Um, another piece of the his story in the film is his relationship with his father, which is quite interesting and an impactful piece to the story as well. Um, yeah, I'm somewhat jealous of him a little bit. He got to talk to all these amazing people, but one of the people that really stood out was was Gary Weber and their conversation. And uh, it was just so interesting and beautiful to watch. Um, so I highly recommend finding a platform to watch Chasing the Present. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with James. And uh, he's down in Costa Rica at the moment, and I was in L.A. And um, here's the conversation from all around the world. All right, James. Well, first off, I just want to say I'm glad we could connect and um, make this happen. We've been messaging for a little bit. And uh, obviously, I came across yourself through your film, Chasing the Present, which I was... I think I probably sent you a DM on Instagram, like within hours of finishing it to see if there was a chance to connect and speak with you. So thanks a lot for getting back to me and being open to it and for making the film. Yeah. Thank you so much, man, for the great feedback and the beautiful message and um, for doing this, this podcast and doing what you do. It's really, it's really cool. Yeah. I think, um, you know, you just mentioned before we jumped on that it's the perfect time for, for this film to come out in terms of the world and where we're at and how much more of these topics are coming to the forefront of conversation, which I definitely agree with. And also just um, for anyone listening and is wants to think about watching the film, it's really beautiful as well. Like so many of these films that sort of touch on mental health and wellness and alternative modalities and things are not so aesthetically considered. So I found the content inspiring the group of people you spoke to incredible and also just a pleasure to watch it as well yeah thank you so much um that was part of what we wanted to do you know i've seen quite a lot of spiritual films and health films and that kind of stuff and when i saw them, i mean the content's usually good you know people are trying to do good things and help others but 
None of them ever looked in the way that I thought like, oh, if I made a film someday, I would want it to look differently. You know, I would want it to look more minimal and kind mm-hmm. of more, I don't know, just more cinematic in a sense, like a, like a proper film yeah. as opposed to the traditional kind of point and shoot documentary style of filmmaking, you know? So Mark Waters, who's, who's one of my best friends and the director of the film, and also he was the lead cinematographer. He, um, this is just how he shoots. It's just his way of taking photos. You know, he started off as a photographer and then he was making documentary films and his style is just like that, you know, and, and we were good buddies and I knew like, if I want to make a film, I want to work with him because yeah. I love the way that he, he does it. You know? Yeah, that's great. I mean, the, that power of collaboration is so important and it's great when you can trust somebody in that way. For sure. For sure. So I think, you know, it'd be great to, I'm sure you've shared it a few times now, um, but just kind of touch back a little bit into your story leading up to the film uh, before we sort of dive into that process. Um, You know, where you grew up, I know that you've mentioned that your sort of anxiety and experience and relationship with anxiety sort of hit you around sort of a teenage years, but I wonder now with the work you've done, if you've been able to sort of uncover maybe some of the earlier inklings of where that started and kind of just share a little bit of that path. Yeah. It's always, whenever I get asked that question, it's difficult to pick a point. You know what I mean? Do Mm -hmm. I start like when my mom was pregnant? Do I start when I was like 10? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like when, when, where do I start, you know? But I grew up in Florida um, and I lived there, you know, most until I was 20 or 21 or so. And then I took off and, um, and moved to Europe, actually, and then found myself in Bali. But yeah, when I was like 15 or so, I got stung by a wasp. Um, I was at a like doing a little weekend job to make some money and we were painting like a house, me and a friend of mine. So we were painting a house and I walked out to the, uh, to the shed to grab some more paint. And as soon as I opened the shed door, um, my hand got stung on my finger and I was like, Oh, okay. It hurt. You know? And I just went back in the house and I put some ice on it. And then like five minutes later, my hand was massive. It looked like a big marshmallow. Like I couldn't even squeeze my fingers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, Oh my God, what's happening. And I started to feel weird. My heart started to pound. And then I went in the bathroom and looked in the mirror and I could barely recognize myself. My whole body was covered in hives. My face was super swollen and I just, luckily I had a friend there and I said, Hey man, I need to go to the hospital now. And he saw me and he's like, Oh my God, he threw me in the car. And then I passed out. And the next thing I knew I worked, I woke up in the hospital, like in the hospital bed, like jumping out, you know, they gave me an adrenaline needle and I jumped out of the bed and, uh, I had like machines attached to me and I can just kind of remember like stuff falling in the hospital because I jumped so like powerfully out of the bed, you know, and I can remember my mom being there and looking at me and crying because I just looked really different. You know, I was like really having a tough time. And, and that was a, a, a thing, you know, my heart stopped and the adrenaline needle kind of brought me back to life. And um, the couple of days after that, I felt really weird. You know, it was mm-hmm. hard to explain how weird I felt like that. Uh, if you have that ad- adrenaline um, in the way that I had it, um, it does something to you that I can't explain. And I, I felt my brain like racing and going at crazy speeds. And I told my mom, like, I don't know what's going on with me. And she took me to a psychologist. I guess I was 15 then. And he gave me a prescription medicine. And I took one tablet, something called Paxil. And I took one tablet and I felt so weird on that one tablet that I was like, uh, I don't want to take this. I think I'll just deal with it. But then I proceeded, you know, in my teenage years to smoke a lot of weed. You know, I was like kind of a stoner when I was a teenager. And and then I would drink quite often. and you know, all these different things I was doing to try to numb myself and to, 
to just kind of self-medicate from, from the anxiety and from the fear that I was having, you know? So I don't really, you know, especially now I've studied anxiety quite a bit and, um, and, and it's very hard and nearly impossible to pinpoint one thing that has brought about anxiety in somebody's life, you know, or mm -hmm. PTSD or any other mental or depression or whatever. Mm -hmm. Usually it's a series of events. And a lot of things happened in my childhood when I was younger. And then that happened. And then several other things happened later on in life. And then, you know, the next thing you know, I'm having panic attacks from basically from the ages of 15 to say 30, yeah. you know, on a monthly basis, like having these attacks of, of just pure panic and, and not understanding what's going on to the point up five years ago, I couldn't even drive a car. Like I really wow. love driving. Like now I have a van and I just drove across the entire United States and I, I just love it, you know, mm -hmm. and I couldn't drive. I would get on the car and in the highway and I would start to have an anxiety attack as soon as I started driving. Wow. And I was like, Oh my God, what's, you know, what's going on. And yeah. that's kind of how the idea for this film came about, you know, because I, you know, I, I, I moved to Amsterdam and then from there, after a couple of years, I lived in Bali and I was building, you know, vegan restaurants and hotels and house communities and all kinds of stuff and made a lot of money. And I was just like, wait a second, how could I like have money and feel happy, but still be waking up in the middle of the night in a panic attack? Mm -hmm. Like what's going on here? I don't understand. And I, and I want to figure it out. So let's figure it out and, and see what we can uncover and make a documentary about it. Yeah. So from the age of 15 to the age of 30, like you just said, it was kind of this building of these uh, anxiety, panic attacks, um, that whole process. Along that path, you did sort of get into diet and nutrition and found yoga. I'm, I'm assuming that was a little bit earlier on in your journey. But was there a point where you were like, okay, I really need to like look inside and there's got to be something else going on here? Was there a moment? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been like a vegetarian. I started that maybe 11 or 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a turning point in my life where I started to look into meditation and gratitude. And, you know, I changed my diet. So I changed my lifestyle. I stopped doing drugs. I stopped drinking. And mm -hmm. all these different things happened. And it was a shift in my life. And, but that's why I was so confused because I was on this path. But then I kind of lost a lot of other addictions. And then I feel like I started becoming addicting to, addicted to work. Mm -hmm. You know, and I would just wake up at four or five o'clock in the morning, straight away, go on my phone, start responding to emails, and it would just go until the moment I went to sleep. Mm -hmm. So there was something else going on. You know, I was always kind of trying to avoid things that I needed to feel, whether it was through drugs when I was younger and alcohol and then getting a little bit older through work and just doing these things to tr really try to avoid feeling. And, yeah. um, and then there was a point, you know, there was a point I had just finished the hotel and this, this hotel that I built. And, um, I was like, okay, like I felt good about it. And I woke up in the middle of the night and my heart was not working correctly. It was skipping beats. It was beating really weirdly, really strongly, powerfully. I went, I thought I was dying. I went to the hospital and I'm like, oh my God, what's, what's going on? And I just had this clear voice that I really needed to change my life or that I was going to die. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, and that's kind of how the journey started. And it was just like this thing of like, you know, I don't want to have panic attacks anymore. Yeah. I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night freaking out, you know, um, for a reason that I don't understand. I want to try to figure it out, you know, and so many people, you know, up until that point, I had done yoga like a day here, a day there, I do it every day for a week and then not do it again for six months. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like that, you know, and I knew that yoga was a very powerful tool. It's the first thing we did 
when we made the film was we went to India to Rishikesh and we did a month long Hatha yoga teacher training. And then from there, it just was amazing. All the philosophy class and all the things that we learned and then kind of letting that open up into all the other stuff that we did. You know, we ended up going to Nepal and studying meditation with nuns and monks and we went to Peru and lived in the jungle in the Amazon for four or five weeks doing ayahuasca. And, and then we got another Jeep and we drove all the way across the United States, um, just meeting people and going to epic nature spots and just spending time connecting in nature and connecting with inspiring people and trying to really understand why I was suffering, trying to really understand the root cause of, of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Leading up to that point, I wonder, like, it sounds like on paper, your life is, you know, successful. You're doing cool projects. It's meaningful, um, financially rewarding, you know, were you kind of like hiding the anxiety attacks and that side of yourself from the outer world, from your family and friends, or was it like sort of a known thing? No, I mean, people that I were in relationships with knew that I had anxiety, but my friends, no, I didn't talk about it. I mean, I had a therapist uh, for like 10 years. So she knew what I was going through. And my parents, no, I mean, my father didn't know that I had anxiety until that scene in the film where I tell him. Wow. That was the first time. And, you know, and I grew up with my family. Both of my parents are still married and, you know, we lived in the same house, but it just wasn't something that was okay to talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad's a really tough guy and, you know, boys don't cry and, Mm -hmm. you know, be a man, this kind of vibe. And, um, so, so me saying that I had anxiety or, or, crying or anything just wasn't allowed, you know? So I kind of, I kind of buried it down a bit. So I guess in a sense, I definitely was hiding it from the outside world. Yeah. Yeah. I know for me, I've like had very visceral experiences of that as a child, especially playing sports and getting upset and crying and that not being okay or accepted. And that I feel like was a really pivotal point in me learning how to like keep those emotions inside and keep a lid on things but i wonder it's tough, you, man. yeah yeah it's and, tough. It, and it takes a toll you know and so i wonder you know when you get to that point after you know 15 years of dealing with this and finally you have the clarity to be like okay i'm gonna go explore this stuff more deeply you know when you start sharing that with people i know from my experience when i was like okay i'm gonna quit my job in new york take some time off go do this i'm actually depressed i've realized people would like be like, no, no, you're not. Like, what are you talking about? You've got a great job and like everything's sweet. Like it was, it was hard to almost have the courage to do that. And, and, you know, especially when everyone's sort of disregarding what you're feeling. I wonder if you had a similar experience at all. Yeah, hundred percent. And imagine me like having vegan restaurants and, you know, living in Bali, people are like, come on, man, you mm-hmm. have anxiety. You live in Bali. It's sunny you have these restaurants, you know, like, come on, you're like, really, you know? And I think that's because I I realized in my own self, which was really a key to overcoming my anxiety. And just, I think just such an important thing in general, those things are not what make us happy. You know, and we see this all the time. It's not some new thing. It's even cliche now to talk about it because it's (laughs) so known in a sense on one level, but on another level, it's not really known, you know? And when people see that we have a nice house or a nice car or a nice relationship or a good job or we have money or whatever, they just assume that we're happy Mm -hmm. or that we're good because they connect happiness with success, happiness with materialism, happiness with these things that we can see in front of us. 
where those, you know, how we feel mentally and how we are in our, you know, in our mental health is not about that. You know, our true level of happiness is determined by how connected we are with the deep, true part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And for me, that, that switching of the identity in a sense, you know, like if, 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 you know, say I'm a doctor and uh, I'm not, and, uh, but I used to want to be a doctor at one point, actually. But say I'm a doctor and my whole life I'm a doctor and I worked for 40 years being a doctor. And then one day I get fired and I do something wrong and I can never be a doctor again. Well, if I'm completely identified with this part of myself that's a doctor, there's going to be a lot of problems mentally if I can never be a doctor again, because that's all that I think that I am, is that. But once we realize, once I realize what I really was, you know, this, this beautiful consciousness, this awareness, once I really realized what that is and started to connect more with that and started to identify more with that aspect of myself, instead of identifying with the material aspect of myself, then things change. You know, so it was this kind of switch of identity, really, that um, that really, really helped me understand my anxiety. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think with the anxiety piece, it's, you know, it feels like it's just being started to talk about now that like anyone can have it, you know, and there's like professional basketball players that are starting to talk about their issues with mental health and it still gets sort of brushed away. But it's, you know, it's funny how cliche the saying is that like money doesn't buy happiness. And we like say it and throw it around, but then nobody actually talks about, you know, what that means to embody and live with a value system that supports that, you know, we say that and then go back out to like chasing the nice cars and the money. A lot of the time it feels like. Yeah. I mean, in February, just before the pandemic, I, I went to, uh, I did an interview with Ed Sheeran in, in England. I went to his house and we got to hang out for the day. Super, super awesome guy. But he said the same thing. I mean, look at him, right? He's like, mm-hmm. I mean, his tour broke every single musician's tour in history. Like he has the best-selling tour of all time. And it's crazy. And he, he, he suffers a lot from social anxiety, like being around people. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. He suffers from that. And um, he was talking about it and he was saying how hard, for it, how hard for him it was to tell his friends about it. Yeah. Because people were like, come on, man, you're fine. Like you're yeah. Ed Sheeran, you know, you have like hundreds of millions of dollars and everything and you could ever, you're fine. Come on, come on. And he's like, no, I'm not fine. Like I'm, I'm struggling, you know, yeah. I'm suffering. And, yeah. um, and it's those things, you know, like we hear it all the time. Jim Carrey saying he wishes everybody could be famous so they could realize that, you know, that's not what happiness is all about and, and all this kind of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with being successful. It's just a problem when we link our happiness and our mental health to success mm-hmm. or to money or to status or two material things because they change, they're transient, mm-hmm. you know? And if we connect too much with that, we're setting ourselves up to fail, mm-hmm. you know, things. And it's, and it's, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really challenging. And, and I think now is, is the most challenging time ever. I mean, if you look at the rates of depression and suicide and anxiety around the world, since coronavirus hit, it's huge. It's yeah. massive what's happening. And, and we're not really, well, I, I mean, it's not, it's still not being talked about enough mental health, you know, not even physical health. Like no <laughs> doctors are telling people to take care of their immune systems and eat healthy. They're just like, everything's just about the vaccination or about yeah. this or about that. So just health in general, isn't really being talked about. It's just, it's crazy. It is crazy. And that thing that like blows my mind just on such a simple logic 
you know, of like, yeah, everyone's just kind of hanging on for the vaccine, but yeah. Why would you not just start eating more healthy, take some vitamin D like such simple attainable things that could be like put out into the public for everyone to do. But yeah, just, uh, you know, it's a crazy sort of world we're in right now. And I feel like with COVID and, and everything that's gone on, there's a bunch of people that have sort of taken that opportunity to get quiet, get still, reevaluate and, and look inward. And then there's a, a lot more people that are probably drinking a lot more and numbing a lot more and avoiding a lot more. And, um, but yeah, know, I felt like, yeah. you know, when this thing happened, I was in, I was, like I said, I was with Ed and then I, like literally the day after I interviewed him, the WHO said that it was a pandemic hmm. and that's when everything started to get real weird, you know, when that announcement was made. So I jumped immediately on the plane, went back to Bali and I started doing a fast. I was like, okay, I think I'm going to go inward here and just see what this is all about. You know, and, and I was having a hard time. I have lots of businesses and all of them closed down except for one. Wow. And, uh, you know, I have, you, you know, like a couple hundred employees and I'm trying to figure out, you know, in Indonesia, it's not the same. The government's not just, you know, they give some rice and some eggs. That's the stimulus package that people are getting right. in Indonesia. So I'm trying to figure out how to keep these people eating jobs, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh man, like this is tough. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a tough situation. What do I do? So I took the opportunity to do a cleanse. You know, I did a 16 day juice fast and I just stayed at home and meditated and and I'm very grateful that I had the ability and the the, um, the luxury to be able to do such a thing, but it was a tough time, and mm-hmm. it reminded me a lot about ayahuasca. You know, I went to um, to Peru during the filmmaking process and did ayahuasca, and I think the biggest lesson that I learned from ayahuasca was learning how to let go. Mm-hmm. You know, learning how to just realizing that I'm not in control. And when I was able to let go in my ayahuasca experience, it became the most beautiful experience ever. Yeah. And I thought like that, that, that kind of came to me like, wow, this, this coronavirus thing is kind of like ayahuasca for the planet. And there's the people, like you said, who will try to fight that teaching and who will just keep drinking, doing more drugs, trying to numb themselves because they can't feel. And then there's the other group of people that are going to see this and realize it and surrender to this moment. And just realize like, wow, this is a really, really beautiful thing that's happening. How can I surrender to this experience and just accept it? Because mm-hmm. we can't really do that much about it. I mean, we can do, you know, little things and help mm-hmm. each other and take care of ourselves and eat healthy and whatever. But in, in reality, like you or I cannot make it to where we can fly to Europe right now, for example. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just impossible. So there's so many things that are completely out of our control and we have to surrender to it. You know, mm-hmm. we have to accept it. And use it as a teaching, as a way of like, okay, how can I just accept what's happening, be compassionate towards the people that are really struggling and do my best? And it really, really, really reminded me of that. You know, it really reminded me of my ayahuasca experience, which I think helped me a lot in this, you know, in this whole pandemic, actually. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have so much respect and gratitude for, for ayahuasca and the medicine. I feel so lucky that I found that in my lifetime as well. And it's just it's so powerful for the ceremony and what, you know, that means for the rest of your life and the impact it can have for months and years into the future, I find. So, you know, you talk about sort of getting back in touch with ourselves, uh, connection and and that sort of thing. I wonder, as you set off to, you know, make the film and sort of travel the world and connect with different teachers and do the yoga training to start with, you know, how, 
how much of that sort of path was planned out and how much of it was sort of following your nose and your instinct into like, what was the next thing to do? Cause there is, while, you know, healing is never a, a linear path, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, doing like a yoga teacher training gives you this foundation, there's philosophy, you're getting into your body, like that allows for a more impactful ayahuasca experience down the line, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm just wondering about that sort of like journey of all the different sort of things that you dove into. Yeah. Um, we didn't plan anything actually. That's <laughs> why that's, it took us like three years to do the filming only. And, you know, mm. in February we'll be on this thing for five years, which, you know, if you make a traditional documentary, you normally shoot it in like 17 days or, you know, mm. 30 days and then you go and edit and whatever. So part of the reason why it took us so long was because we let things unfold naturally. You know, we did, we started off with like, Hey, that's, you know, a yoga training feels right. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, when we were there, people were telling us about ayahuasca and we're like, okay, I had so much fear about doing ayahuasca, Mm -hmm. but we reached out to an incredible place in Peru called the temple of the way of light. And, uh, we had several interviews with Matthew, who's the founder of the place before he would agree to let us come out there because they never let anybody film there before because it's such a sensitive thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then we did that. And then I had a friend called Justin who, um, was actually climbing Everest, uh, base camp when the horrible earthquake struck Nepal. And he like was literally running down the mountains in Nepal, like while the earthquake was happening and he came down and saw a devastation And he changed his whole life and decided that he wanted to just build schools for kids in Nepal, you know, because they got destroyed during the earthquakes. So he invited me to come out there and help with that. And I did. And then we met these amazing nuns and monks and we learned some meditation techniques. And we went into this, climbed this mountain called Shiva Puri, which is supposedly the place where Shiva touched down on earth for the first time, you know, according to that, that tradition and philosophy. And then, you know, we, we went to the States because, you know, some of the key things that we were talking, we were talking to many cultures and people from different religions and indigenous people and elders and really trying to find answers, you know, and I think a couple of things we heard over and over again, regardless of age, regardless of country, regardless of religion, regardless of everything. And one of those key, key things was how important it is to spend time in nature, you know, and it was like, wow, okay, all of these people are saying the same thing, being connected to nature, how important it is to be connected to nature. So we really integrated that into the film and into our lives. Um, and, and we went to the States and we just tried to find the most beautiful places in the U.S. and spend time there. You know, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Monument Valley, Grand Canyon, like all these awesome parks and forests and just connect and try to have some silence. Give, our chance, uh, give ourselves a chance to, 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 for our mind to, to be quiet and to allow things that come up in order to be healed, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, so it unfolded quite naturally until we got to New York and, uh, and we're completely disconnected from nature. <laughs> no, but until we got to New York, then we had to plan because we had all this sporadic, crazy, you know, two, 300 hours of footage mm-hmm. that we needed to turn into film. So we thought like, okay, let's connect this by having some cool conversations with really inspiring people. Mm-hmm. So we started to research who, who inspired us and reach out to people and, and see who would respond and and then we kind of um use those interviews in a sense to kind of pull the whole journey together yeah yeah i thought i mean those conversations were a great layer in the film as well and um i wonder like how did you go about 
you know, how was the process of getting together that group? Cause it was a really interesting, diverse, um, and sort of like top tier level of people that you have brought in, you know, people that are hard to get a hold of at times for sure. Yeah, for sure. And we had more people as well. You know, like I spent a couple of days with Muji and we, we filmed the whole day with Muji, but in the end it didn't make sense uh, to put his piece in the film because he was like the last person we filmed with. And it was kind of just sprinkled him on there a little bit and it didn't make sense, but maybe we'll use that for something else. But in terms of getting in contact with people, you know, we put together a nice little presentation mm-hmm. um, of what we were doing and we made a nice little video to send them. And we just told them what we were doing and shared our heart with them openly and had conversations. And a lot of people said yes. A lot of people said no. Mm-hmm. And the ones that said yes, that we really wanted to speak to, we, we made it happen. You know, yeah. we went there and we filmed with them and, and they were really beautiful to spend time with these people and to have that opportunity to, to be in presence with them. You know, they were all one thing that I could say about everybody that was in the film is that they had such a high quality of presence. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was just because we were on camera. I don't think that's why, but they were like really fully there. Yeah. And it's different when you're having a conversation with even some people that we consider our close friends. Mm-hmm. You know, how often are we actually really fully present with each other? You know, or how often are we at a dinner with 10 people where nine of them are on their phones and the other ones thinking about what they're going to do the next day? You know what I mean? So like this idea of like really, really being in the moment with our loved ones and with friends and family and whatever, um, I really felt that a lot from the people that we interviewed in the film. And it was super cool yeah, and really inspiring. Yeah, that is cool. I also wanted to just touch back on sort of, you know, the emphasis you just put on sort of nature and connecting to that. I wonder what sort of lessons you sort of gleaned from, from, from making that more of a priority and intentionally connecting and being in those places. I mean, I think, you know, it just, I think slowing down is just so important, you know, because our mind can go faster than we can for sure. You know, our thoughts can go way faster. And when we're in these environments, these high intense cities and high energy environments or really stressful jobs or whatever, we get just caught in this wheel in our mind of thoughts and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like nature, just going and jumping in the ocean or just going and leaving your phone and And just going and spending time in nature really helps us to slow down, you Mm -hmm. know? And then when we slow down a couple days later, the mind slowly starts to slow down, body slows down, the thoughts become less, and we really have a chance to connect with nature, you know, Mm -hmm. because ultimately it's what we are. We're natural. We're Mm -hmm. supernatural, you know? And when we are in these kind of natural spaces and these natural states, that natural part of ourself feels home because it's really what we truly are in our deepest core. So for me, going into nature is really like, is really like going home in a, in a strange way, in a beautiful way. And, um, I think it's super important. I think it's really, really important, um, to do that, you know, whether it be, you know, and I realize I'm privileged in a sense, you know, I worked hard and became a certain successful, whatever, And I traveled around the world to understand my anxiety and blah, blah, blah. And I know there's a lot of people who can't do that. You know, there's single moms who live in New York and they have three jobs and whatever. But I think no matter what the situation is, you know, we can learn how to spend five minutes a day meditating, Mm -hmm. or we can learn how to just go take a walk around Central Park to clear our minds. If we live in New York, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're in LA, we can go to Santa Monica and walk on the beach. You know, there's things we can do wherever we are. We don't have to all travel around the world and go do all these crazy things in order to 
connect with our core. Yeah. You know, there's so many different teachings online and that are free and there's so many different ways to do it. Um, for me, that's just what I, you know, I just love traveling. I've loved traveling since I first could afford to do it. And it's like just something I really enjoy. Yeah. So I did it that way, but it's not a necessity. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely not. And like so many of the tools, like you said, are, are free and at our fingertips at all, at all times. But you know, the way that we're sort of conditioned to this hectic lifestyle to break out of that, sometimes it does feel like we need to go to some foreign place and do some, you know, 10 day silent retreat or 20 day cleanse or some kind of course. Um, and that feels like there's probably something more like romantic to that, but it can also be, you know, the only way that those teachings are going to be lasting is if we bring that back to our daily lives, wherever we are anyways, it feels. And so just like, it really comes down to doing a little bit each day. Um, but yeah, slowing down and, and being present and, you know, there's so much we can learn from nature, you know, it's just always finding that harmony and so much closer to it. And we just, as human beings can get so far from that sort of place of balance that um, reconnecting with that for me is just, yeah, as well, it's become such an important thing and just, you know, learning from the trees and the plants, there's just so much there. I've done a, a few of these ayahuasca dieta retreats and the whole sort of ethos and idea is that you become a plant in the, in the week that you spend in the forest and you just, you know, you don't leave your little area, you just stay there and you just, you know, and you learn to hear the patterns of the birds and the trees and like when the wind blows and, you know, all your senses enhance and everything just feels like you said it, it's like a return to home. For sure. What kind of plants did you work with? Um, so I've done three diets now and I did Rose, Makura and Ucho Sinango. In Peru or? In uh, actually in Canada, oh cool, yeah, Very cool. There's a there's a shaman there that um, I got connected with, and he actually goes down and, and trains in Peru, and has done for for decades now. And then yeah, has been sharing the medicine in in Canada. Super cool. But uh, on the yeah on the topic of ayahuasca, like in the film, we see you in that sort of little hut, and you look pretty skinny. So I figured <laughs> you must have been doing. Uh, a pretty intensive diet or something as well. Not just, you know, going down for a couple of nights of ceremony. No, I did a really intense diet. Actually, like my dad, he, when, when I took, cause he didn't really know what I was making the film about. So when I told him what I was making, I said like, Hey, I'm going to talk to you on camera and I'm going to explain to you what I'm making the film about. When I told him, he thought I was making a film about that. I had cancer. He thought I was going to tell him cause he saw me so skinny. Uh, He's like, Oh my God, do you have cancer? I was like, no, no, I don't have cancer. I just like, I've been doing these diets, <laughs> but he, uh, that's how skinny I was like probably 30 pounds skinnier than I am right now. Um, but it, because I did, I was in India for four weeks doing a yoga teacher training and it was like literally 40 degrees Celsius while we were training in July. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really hot and we were eating Indian food and, um, yeah, tend to lose a lot of weight when you're in India. <laughs> I guess if you've been there, you you know what I'm talking about. And um, and then from there, we went to the United States, and I did a, a, a 10 day juice fast um, with Dr. Gabriel Cousins at the Tree of Life. And then I went on a month strict diet before I did ayahuasca of the ayahuasca diet, which is mm-hmm. just like 
you know, no carbs, no sugars, just a very, no spices, which is like a very plain, very basic diet. So I did that for a month. And then while I was at the center, I was doing that for another month. So I was like really, really hardcore, like extreme diets and cleanses and fasts for like a three or four month period. Wow. Um, so I went in there feeling pretty light and pretty clean to say the least. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, I did some diets for sure. How was that process in terms of that sort of, um, you know, strict way of, of eating, um, over that period of time, did you find it easy because you're so committed to this sort of mission or was it pretty challenging? No, I found it quite, I didn't find it. I mean, of course, you know, from time to time I'd see somebody eating something else and be like, (laughs) Oh, you know, I really want to have that or whatever. But I, you know, when I became a vegetarian, like I said, like 10 or 12 years ago, it started because, um, someone gave me a book called skinny bastard. And at the end of the book, it was a 30 day challenge to become a vegetarian. And I was like, Oh, I can, I can try. I can do anything for 30 days. And then that's been still going, you know? So mm-hmm. that 30 day challenge. So I think like when I, it's actually easier for me when I set my mind to something for a mm-hmm. time to do it, than to do it like in my normal and in like my daily life. Yeah. It's hard, like it's easy for me to go to a yoga teacher training and do yoga for like five hours a day for a month than to like figure out a way to do like a daily routine schedule in my daily life. Totally. So I actually, I actually enjoy like going to these places and doing extreme things. It it makes it like a lot easier for me somehow. Yeah, I can feel, I mean, I relate to that too. I actually just read this interesting article that was by the sports scientist and he talks about how, you know, the pandemic specifically is like a marathon with no end, you know? <laughs> and it's like, it's much harder to sort of calibrate ourselves to something like that. Cause when we know there's an end, we can sort of commit to it and we can tough it out and it's easier to get through the harder points. But if it was like, okay, you're, you know, doing this diet for an, you just never know when it's going to be over or an exercise or whatever it is. It's much harder for us to, to sort of figure out how to pace ourselves like mentally just with that sort of process. But um, yeah, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your experience in in Peru and, um, and doing the diets as well. Like what, you know, how many, how many ceremonies did you end up doing down there versus how much sort of time you were there and, and how long were the diets you were doing? Um, I did like during a 13 day period, I did five ceremonies. And then the rest of the time that we were there, we were filming with the people and mm-hmm. cruising around and, you know, just feeling it out and, and, and shooting a lot and stuff like that. And um, I had a really hard time doing with ayahuasca. It was mm-hmm. not an easy thing for me. And I would say to anybody, you know, who's listening or, or whatever, that I don't see ayahuasca as like a recreational drug. You know, I know we have these people like Chelsea Handler and all these other people in the States like, ah, Let's go take ayahuasca for the weekend because it seems so cool. Or, you know, even in Peru, they're selling ayahuasca and syringes on the street. That's crazy. For, people, for ways to people get high and to go in clubs. And, you know, for me, ayahuasca is a very, very sacred medicine. And I was really struggling with anxiety and I tried a lot of other things and they didn't work. So I thought that I would give ayahuasca a shot. And I think that anybody who, who you know, is thinking about doing ayahuasca should do their research. They should really understand it and really feel like it's something for them to do and really treat it like a medicine because that's what it is. And I think that it, it deserves that level of respect, you know? So first and foremost, I always like to, sh- to share that. And, mm-hmm. and that's the, that's the mentality and the, and the mind frame that I went into it. 
with. And um, it was scary. I was super afraid, to be honest. I was like, oh man, you know, I, I had done LSD when I was younger and, you know, and had some crazy experiences with that and done mushrooms a few times. And I was trying to understand what ayahuasca would be like. So I was talking to Matthew, the owner of the place. And so is it like this or is it like that? Like trying to like, you know, my mind really wanted to figure out what was going to happen. <laughs> and I thought I had it figured out. I thought yeah. I got it. I was like, yeah, I got it. I got this. Like, just let go. That's going to be easy, you know? And then I drink it and I'm, I just, <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is uh, pretty different. Uh, okay. And, you know, for the, the first night I did it, I didn't really feel much. They gave us like a little tiny dose to kind of just feel the vibe out. And I had a really beautiful, beautiful meditation and I saw a snake or something and, you know, and it was cool and it was mellow. And but then the second night happened and they, they made it stronger. They boiled it down or whatever. And I drank a glass and, I was okay. I was feeling fine. I was actually feeling quite good. And I was like, oh, you know, one of those feelings where you're like, yeah, maybe I should have some more. You know, <laughs> I just feel this is kind of nice. So I asked for another glass and then I drank another glass and everything just changed, completely transformed. And it just got really difficult and really dark. And in the Shipibo tradition, that's where I went and drank with was the Shipibo people. They sing to you individually. So there was like 12 of us in a pitch black, dark room. Uh, sitting in circle, laying on your back or sitting up if you can, whatever. And they go around and they take turns singing to you. And they can sing to you anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. Just one-on-one, they just sit in front of you and sing. And when uh, Jose, who was the, one of the shamans that we were working with, came over and sang in front of me, everything just changed. You know, and I don't want to get too much into the visual aspect of what I saw because I think, um, I think that it's not as important as, the, as what we feel in, in, in ayahuasca ceremonies. but. I saw crazy stuff and uh, he actually grabbed me by the head, like in real life. I wasn't tripping. He grabbed me and started sucking on the top of my head and like for a while. And, and then I fell back and he started throwing up and I was like, Oh my God, like this guy's trying to steal my soul. What's happening to me. I started freaking out. I like, I can't really walk, you know, and I'm trying to get to the bathroom and I get in and I lock myself in the bathroom for the rest of the night. Just uh-huh. like freaking, like freaking out. Like, what am I doing here? Please, God, if I get through this, I'll never do it again. You know, <laughs> making those kind of deals. You know, <laughs> and uh, and then the next thing you know, I'm like, it's eight hours later. The shamans leave, and I crawl back into the room, and and I uh, I pass out, and I wake up the next day, and I never felt better in my life. I felt like something completely changed from that. And then I saw the shaman, he walked by, he was like laughing at me and pointing and stuff. And I'm like, oh, speaking in <laughs> Spanish, you know, and I don't really understand what he's saying. Like, why is he laughing at me? Like, what's going on? And then he called me into the room and they explained and they just said I had such a big blockage that I was unable to purge it myself. Oh, wow. And because I also did so much cleansing and stuff like that, I didn't really have so much physical stuff that needed to be cleansed. Right. So I couldn't, I couldn't get out what needed to get out. So actually the shaman like sucked it out of my head and wow. purged it for me, which is pretty deep. I don't know if we're yeah. going too deep for this, no, that's, uh, that's cool. for this podcast. And then I did it, you know, after I made those deals to God that I wouldn't do it again, I, I kind of reneged on the deal. And, you know, the next day I did it again. And, uh, and I didn't really have much of an experience because I kind of chickened out on the dose because I had such a traumatic event the night before. And then the fourth night was when really I experienced something amazing. I drank a good amount and I was immediately, I was, you know, I had an anxiety attack 
prior to even drinking it, I was crying and shaking. And then I was like, oh man, I'm crying and shaking already. I haven't even drank the stuff yet. So then I go up to the shaman and I grab it and it's like, here we go, you know, and I drink it. And then like 20, 30 minutes later, bam, I'm in this crazy mystical dark space again. And I, I get myself into the bathroom. I lock myself in the bathroom because there was a little candle there. And I'm just like in there, just really having a hard time, really struggling, really, really difficult. And then I had this one little like, like thought, like, what are you trying to control? You're in the jungle in Peru trying to heal something in yourself. And you're trying to control this medicine that you drank, which you can't control. Stop trying to control. Mm. And I thought like, wow. And I got out of the bathroom and I was like, someone came to get me and, you know, she had three heads and it was like, this, you know, <laughs> I was like, all right, just okay. And I went back and I got down to my little yoga mat and I laid down and I closed my eyes and I thought, I don't want to control anymore. And in that moment, I somehow was able to just completely let go of everything. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I let go of everything, the whole situation that I was experiencing completely changed. And it just became this, the most beautiful experience in my life where I thought that I was dead. I was like, wow, I think I just died. And then I, when I understood that some part of me died, it was okay. And it was amazing. And I was like, wow, if this is death, like, I'm, let's just stay here because this is incredible. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And in that, you know, so much happened and I had these other crazy mystical things happen to me. And I had this voice speak to me and just tell me like, this is how we heal. We can actually let go of disease. We can let go of illness. We can let go of things that we're suffering from. We just have to learn how to get to this place so that we can let go of it. What would you like to let go of? And then I had this dialogue of the things that I wanted to let go of. And then immediately I started purging. And I could see these things in different forms like coming out of me into the, in the purge physically. And it was just like, it was just incredible. Uh, it was a really, really incredible experience that, that I feel like changed my life. Wow. And it took me a while. It took me a couple of years to really integrate that. I felt really weird for a year. I felt really sensitive, mm-hmm. hypersensitive in, in situations. I couldn't really be around loud noises. It, was just, it really hit me hard mm-hmm. afterwards. And I was kind of trying to integrate what I had learned. And, um, and then it came back to me full circle. During, like I said, at the beginning of this pandemic, like, this is like ayahuasca for the planet. Like we just have to surrender to this and let go and just accept what's happening right now and do the best we can. And, uh, and then I feel like the, the integration kind of came full circle. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a crazy story. And I don't want it to scare anybody away. Um, <laughs> I have my own things. Everybody, you know, some people see rainbows and butterflies and dinosaurs and, <laughs> you know, other people have to uh, have some stuff that they have to work through. And, and that's why I think it's such a serious thing. You know, it's not a fun thing to go take because you never know what's going to happen. It's different every time. And, um, you know, somebody told me something that uh, I'll never forget. I think it was Graham Hancock. He told me ayahuasca will take you to your furthest point in yourself mm-hmm. and it will never take you further. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it just made me feel safe. But the thing is, you don't know what that furthest point in yourself is. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ayahuasca might have an idea, but we don't know. Like, okay, yeah. I think I passed that point like, you know, an hour ago. You're like, no, 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 there's more, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's a beautiful medicine though. That's for yeah. sure. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I just have so much respect for it and definitely echo what you said to start with as well in terms of approaching it with that sort of respect and awe and, you know, a healthy fear as well doesn't hurt because, you know, I kind of like correlated to the ocean sometimes. It's like the ocean is this huge, powerful thing that, you know, you can go play in it and you got to surrender to it and respect it and have a little bit of a healthy fear in it. And, uh, for a bit you can like harmonize with it. And I find that a little bit with like mother ayahuasca as well, you can, you know, really deeply connect with her and it is this sort of relationship and yeah, she'll, you know, she gives you what you need and not what you want. And, and my experience has been that the medicine will only, you know, take you as deep or as far as you're re- really ready for, at least when you're doing it with that sort of good intention, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. But yeah, definitely, like you said, it's, uh, um, you know, what you're ready for might be beyond what you can fathom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a powerful one for sure. Um, so, you know, coming out of that experience, like you said, the integration, you know, that it can just open you up and, and energetically be so, mm, I don't know what the word is, but yeah, you just have this like increased sensitivity. I think you just feel raw. Mm-hmm. You know, I think raw is a good word. You just feel really raw and open. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like for me, every time I feel so deeply connected to my heart coming out of it. Um, And for me, what I understand is that that's sort of where my spirit sort of lives and resides. And that's, you know, my truest compass in terms of when we talk about like our truer selves or our deeper selves, you know, I feel like that is where that sort of really resides and lives for me. And and those experiences can make that very sensitive. So it can be challenging to come out and, you know, step into any sort of conflict with a loved one or just navigate the world in general. I wonder you know, with the experiences you've had now, how do you sort of balance, you know, set, set up the boundaries to protect that sort of true self that, that you've come to know through developing this relationship. And, um, you know, you want to stay connected to it, but you want to like keep it safe in the, in the same way. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. I think it's a really important, um, important thing. And I think it's something I'm still trying to learn how to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that I'm like, some guy that has the answers, you know, about anything other than just, just getting through life and trying to understand, you know, how to do it in my own way, you know, based on my own experiences. But I think it is important to protect that space in ourselves and to, and to nurture that space in ourselves. Um, I, I, I liken it to, um, I don't have any kids, but I imagine if you have a kid, you know, you have to nurture that child. And we do these different things to protect our children and to make sure they're held and taken mm-hmm. care of and seen and, you know, and how imagine that that space inside of ourselves is a child, mm-hmm. you know, and what would we do for that, for that inner child? How would we treat that? Mm-hmm. How would we treat that other being? What kind of respect would we give it? What kind of protection would we give it? So it's like that, you know, it's this delicate flower, inner child, beautiful, sensitive, um, space. And I think, um, you know, just honoring that in ourselves. And and that might be through many different ways, you know, having a daily practice of meditation or doing yoga or whatever, or not getting overly stimulated and, you know, making sure you have time in nature, making sure you, um, 
have time in silence and that you have time to connect deeply with yourself mm-hmm. and that you have moments of presence, you know, and, and that those moments can get deeper and longer and, and stuff like that. And in terms of boundaries, uh, I think it's super important. I think my dad has taught me a lot about boundaries and I think our parents are good teachers of like, how do we set boundaries, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, just being straight up, you know, being honest, you know, when mm-hmm. something's not okay, just letting them know in a very polite way, hey, this is not cool with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not cool with that. You know, it's like if someone was going to come in your house in the middle of the night and steal something from you, um, you know, you're just going to be like, here, take it, take, oh, I have this hidden safe too. Let me go grab this stuff from the <laughs> hidden safe and, and give it to you as well. You know, you're yeah. going to be like, hey, this isn't cool with me. And I think it's, it's important to figure out how to set up healthy boundaries and it's difficult. You know, everybody has their own way and they'll figure out how to do that. It's a dance and you got to play with it. And sometimes at the beginning, I think uh, I was a bit aggressive in setting boundaries, you know, because I was so far on this side mm-hmm. and one part of my life with not having any boundaries to like jumping on the other side of the fence. And then it becomes like this, this thing of like that, that eventually kind of comes into balance. And then we feel it, you know, I feel like we're in this flow and that we're, we're going through life in a nice way, but it's an art and it's a dance. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think the more time we spend connecting with ourselves, the more time we spend connecting with our heart, the more time we spend in the present moment, the more that everything automatically actually comes more into balance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and like your little analogy of like somebody coming into our house, it sounds funny, but we most of us are doing that emotionally all the time, you know? Just like, yeah, take it. Like I just don't want any problems, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like really happening. It's like, that's a very real thing. So I, I like that. But um, yeah, you know, getting quiet, getting still, getting connected to ourselves, to nature, meditation, my opinion is just like an absolute fundamental to any sort of life of of presence, of harmony, of well-being. I wonder sort of what your journey has been like with meditation specifically, how it's evolved over these last five years as well. I had a really long time where I had a really consistent meditation practice, you know, throughout this filmmaking process. And, um, and I still do have a relatively consistent meditation practice. And sometimes I take some breaks from the physical practice of waking up and sitting with my eyes closed and whatever, because I feel like where I'm at now in my life, you know, um, I think the Bible says something and it's, you know, Jesus said something like, uh, to pray without ceasing. And I think that's very interesting. For me, prayer and meditation are synonymous. And it's like, okay, so if, if it's meditate without ceasing, what does that mean? You know, meditate without stopping. Well, how can I meditate without stopping? Am I supposed to go live in the Himalayas and just be in a cave and just meditate for the rest of my life and never stop? No, for me, it's like, how, it's like living in this moment. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we constantly connect with this moment? you know, beyond the five minutes or one hour or three hours in the morning that we spend with our eyes closed in a meditative, in a meditative posture, how do we take that throughout the day? You know, how are we able to be in nature and be present and be in that space? How are we able to, you know, be with our girlfriends, boyfriends, partners, whatever, and be present with them in that moment? How can we do that? And all of that for me now becomes like a meditative practice. And I'm not present all the time. I'm not even close. But like when I'm not, I start to understand it more and start to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm looking at my girlfriend and thinking about pizza, you know, I, I'll go on that thought for a little bit because I really like pizza. And then I'll be like, okay, like, this is cool. Okay, okay, okay. Let's come back here. You know, I'm somewhere else. 
Yeah. And that's what meditation is, you know, and that's actually how I, the last time that I almost had an anxiety attack, it was because of one of those moments. It was because of, I was driving and I felt the anxiety come up. I felt the panic start to come up. And as soon as, for me, anxiety was very physical. I would feel these crazy sensations in my body, you know, like a tingling in my chest and my face would go numb to the point where I couldn't move my jaw even to be able to talk. And then I wouldn't be able to breathe. And it got really real. But as soon as one of those little physical sensations would affect me, my mind would turn on and the thoughts would go into high gear. Oh my God, what's happening? Am I going to die? Uh, uh, uh. And those thoughts and my participation in those thoughts, in that thought process, was what would take me down this rabbit hole and turn a physical anxious symptom into a full-blown panic attack. Right. So the last time that I had a panic attack, three, you know, maybe four years ago or three years ago, was because I felt those things and my mind tried to come in and like, oh my God, you're dying. But instead of answering it back and participating in it, I was able to just watch it mm-hmm. and just allow the mind to do what it wanted without connecting to it, without participating in it. And I was able to watch my body do what it needed to do and to just actually feel something that needed to be felt. Mm-hmm. Because I think anxiety is a beautiful teacher now. I see it as an alert system in our body just telling us that there's things there that are unresolved that we need to feel. Yeah. And if we can be present with them and aware with them and treat them in a sense like they are this little child that's inside and we can hold them, mm-hmm. then they go away. And for me, that's what meditation is about. You know, it's not called a practice for fun. It's a practice for the big game, right? It's a practice for when we're having a full-blown panic attack. Can Mm -hmm. we take those things that we practice in the morning and take them into every single part of our life? Whether we're cooking in the kitchen or brushing our teeth or making love or whatever we're doing, how can we just integrate it into every part of our life? And for me, that's the meditation that I'm really interested in at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I feel the same way in terms of the goal of that being just something that permeates through as much as many moments of the day as possible. But it's interesting how it can be so challenging just to sit down for five to 10 minutes to start with. And, you know, the process is like, well, is anything even happening? And, and then, like you said, down the line, it's like you're closing the gap between your mind kind of running away and you coming back to the present moment. And, you know, not first, you know, getting that separation to be able to observe and then you observe and you sort of inquire. And then it just, it's like the whole evolution of that is so interesting, I think. And, um, you know, so much of that is attachment, attachment to that thoughts, like you're saying. And in the film, there's a pretty, you know, from, from watching it, it feels like there's a moment when you're talking to Sri Prambhava by the river and it's like you realize in that moment on film that suffering is a choice. And, um, you know, it felt like a really beautiful moment and, and something where he's like, yeah, you got it, you know? And it just, it was, it was uh, like enlightening to watch, you know? I felt like energetically like, ah, yeah, like that's so beautiful. And it felt like you were, you know, understanding and embodying this lesson that he was sort of, you know, in a beautiful conversation as well. It just, yeah, it was a really potent moment I thought in that film. Yeah. It was one of my favorite moments in the film as well. And it was, uh, I don't, it was uh, suffering is an illusion. That's what it was. Right. And, and, uh, that's, that's a very complicated, um, 
statement in a sense. You know, I wouldn't go. Actually, one time we posted it and I took it down because I felt like it 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 really needed to be explained. You know, because there's a lot of people who are suffering in the world and at many different levels, and to tell them that suffering is not real um, is it doesn't seem responsible in a sense. You know, and but what it actually means and what I understood it to mean is just the one that suffering is not real. You know, because we have this identification, we wear these masks all the time, you know, the mask of even the fact that I'm James or that I'm a doctor or that I'm a filmmaker or, you know, that you're a health expert or whatever. We wear these masks of like, we get attached to this idea of this is what we are. But, and that's what suffers, that mask, that concept of what we think we are. That's where the suffering exists. But in our true core, in our heart, and where love is, where presence is, where awareness, consciousness, God, where all this stuff exists, there is no suffering. So in that sense, if you're fully connected to that space, you don't suffer. It's when we get out of that space and we're wearing these masks that the suffering starts to happen. And I really, I got that. I was like, whoa, like the core of who I really am isn't anxious, isn't feeling anxiety. It was actually this, this other part of who I am, you know, my ego. The, the mask of what I wear, that's the part that's suffering. Mm-hmm. And when you can let go of that and that identity starts to fall away, so does the suffering. Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting one because I totally understand what you mean. It makes me think of uh, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, when he's mm. experiencing the, the Holocaust. And yeah, I feel like that is sort of a big teaching of that book. You know, he's going through one of the most harsh human suffering experiences ever and you know he's sharing like well you don't have to suffer in a way like it's still a choice like our emotional space is still we still have like the ability to choose what that is how we react and how we feel and things so there is you know underneath that more surface suffering there is that like opportunity for peace for everyone for sure yeah. Sure. Um, you know, for me, actually, one of the things that, you know, I've kind of just realized actually how impactful the film you made has been on my own life, just as I was putting together some questions. But, um, you know, your conversation with Gary Weber, I just found so uh, enlightening and interesting. And I was smiling through a lot of it. You know, he just seems like such an interesting guy. And he's very frank with sort of the stuff he shares with you. Um, part of it, I think was just like, you know, these questions of like, who am I, who like really asking, who am I, who is listening, who is seeing these sort of like inquiries are so, you know, interesting and so far beyond anything I could have imagined even contemplating two years ago in my own life. And now, you know, these are part of my practice, but the thing that really I found like very impactful is when he was like saying, all we have is now, now, now and i've used that in my own daily life and in medicine ceremonies to be able to tap into that sort of ultimate harmony of presence that's going on in the universe at every single moment that we're usually not in tune with and i just found like that little practice and that little share that he had in your conversation you know just has allowed me to experience something I hadn't really experienced before in, in such a pure way. And so 
I'm, you know, grateful for you and him for having that conversation, but I'm curious to know your reflections on, on the conversation with Gary specifically, as well as he was posing some pretty sort of, you know, they feel like sort of existential, um, ideas and thoughts. Yeah. Well, awesome. And I'm glad that that was so impactful. It was very impactful for me as well. Like that conversation, he was the only person in the film that I, they, they, like the director told me not to research him, not to read any of his books, not to watch his Ted talk. You're just going to go meet this guy and we rented an apartment. We're going to set it up and just talk to him. Just have a chat. And we talked for like three hours, you know, and it was amazing. I knew nothing about him. You know, everything yeah. just kind of got uncovered through the conversation. And yeah, it came to me um, kind of realizing myself like, well, wait a minute. Like if this mask thing there is James and whatever, then who am I really? Which is again, like the most cliche statement ever. <laughs> like, who am I? You know, like, I don't know yeah. if you've seen Zoolander, I'm yeah, sure. Of course, right? yeah. And, and of course, like Ben Stiller's like looking in the puddle, <laughs> yeah. you know? And he's like, who am I? You know what I mean? And it's like, even that is, and it's like, and the guy's like, what are you talking about? Get back to work, you know? Um, so it's that thing of, of, I do that. It's self-inquiry. You know, that's the meditation that he's talking about. That's what he's done. Ramana Maharishi and Papaji and Muji and Gary Weber. And these people practice self-inquiry. And it's this idea of just really tracing back these steps to really get to the truth of who we are, you know, and then they call it the neti neti process, which is just like, you know, going back, you know, you might ask somebody what they do for work. And she says, or, or, or who are you? Well, I'm a teacher. Well, are you a teacher? You haven't always been a teacher. You're not always going to be a teacher. Who are you behind that? Oh, I'm a mother. Oh, really? You're a mother. Okay. Well, you haven't always been a mother. And you're not always going to be a mother. So, you know, who are you beyond that? And then eventually you just go back and back and back and back. And that's what we can do through the self-inquiry meditation as well, where we just get to this point where we're speechless, you know, and it's just this everything, nothingness combined experience of just like, who are we? What are we? What is this really? And it's not about what we think we are. It's about what we actually are. Mm -hmm. And it's this moment of this now, now now you know this 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 idea of being present and being presence and just presence in general like without the being without the james being present just mm. presence and it's really interesting because it trips me out a bit when i think about it i don't really talk about it too much because i don't really want to seem weird to people or whatever but you know because we always just talk and we talk about how um you know we didn't we're not present or we need to be more present or whatever and what's really interesting is just like, can we ever not be present? <laughs> like, can we ever actually be away from presence? No. Is it, is it yeah. possible? No, it's not possible. You know, it's, it's what we are. And I guess a good analogy is like a mirror with dust on it, right? Sometimes there's dust on the mirror, but the mirror is not gone. Yeah. We're not separated from the mirror. The mirror is always there. Mm -hmm. Just sometimes it appears to be dusty. You know, and or the sky, you know, there's so many analogies, you know, the sky's there and it's blue or whatever, and the clouds come, but the sky's still there. It's just that we can't see it because the clouds got in the way, but it always exists and we're always connected to that. And that's something that I use as a reminder for myself mm -hmm. to just remember that that's actually what I am. Yeah. And I'm always that. Mm -hmm. I've always been that and I'm always going to be that. And these other things that come and go they come and go. Mm -hmm. So they're not the core of my being. Right. The core of my being doesn't come and go. Mm -hmm. The core of my being is infinite. The core of my being was never born and will never die. Mm 
just always there. It always mm-hmm. has been and always will be. And for me, that's super comforting. You know, it's really comforting. And I really feel that and experience that in my life. And um, of course, you know, I don't walk around just like, ah, like in this like state, like floating, you know, <laughs> or whatever. There's things that come up and I appear to get distracted from that quite often. But I know that that's what I am, you know. And I think in summary, that's like a, a good a, a good explanation of what our conversation with Gary Weber was about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's it's such an interesting and it's funny too because those questions are so simple, but we just so often don't consider those things. You know, what are we beyond what we think we are? And when you strip it back, it doesn't take that many questions even to get down to a lot closer to the core. But you know, even just what you're just saying about like James being present, you know, as opposed to just existing as presence is so interesting as well. And, you know, the shift in that perspective, because it is true, you know, it's, there's, and so much of our system is fully present, you know, all the time, you know, like we keep breathing, we keep, our hearts keep beating, our stomachs keep digesting, like those parts of us, you know, don't get distracted by the dust on the mirror or the clouds in the sky as well. And, um, it's just so interesting how we, you know, are, are hucking dust onto the mirror ourselves a lot of the time as we get older. Sure. hundred <laughs> percent. But yeah, you know, I wonder now, like as you've sort of delved into this practice and you're able to get, you know, closer to your truer self, your eternal self, how does that then guide you as you, you know, go out into the world and act each day? I think that at some point there's like a fundamental shift that happens. It's like, you know, I feel like in my life, I, I was always like um, searching for something to make me feel happy, mm-hmm. searching for something on the outside to make me feel happy on the inside, which is impossible, right? That's like, we, that's why, you know, like you have these people who just keep needing more and more and more and more and more. And, and that's why even a child, you know, they want a present for Christmas and they were asking their parents for it for months and then they get it on Christmas day. And then like one week later, it's in a corner somewhere broken and the kid <laughs> doesn't even think about it. He wants something else yeah. because we're always, we're trained from such a young age to always need external things, new external things. You know, that's how the economy works. If people didn't need new things or if we didn't think that we needed things in order to be happy, it would fail. The economy mm-hmm. would collapse. Right. So that's how we're trained to believe and feel. And, um, it's, there was a shift from, just connecting with that space and using that connection with that space as a source of happiness and then living life as an expression of that source of happiness as opposed to needing to have so many things from the outside to try to fill a space which is in which is not fillable in order to be happy so it's the shift from the happiness coming from the inside out and letting your life be an expression of that happiness versus trying to take things from the outside in in order for those things to try to make you feel happy, which will never work. Mm-hmm. So if we can make that shift from trying to connect with happiness in ourselves and expressing that to that place, as opposed to from the outside in, I think we have a really good shot to to change our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the tools I feel like is very useful in terms of that, that experience and that transition is, is gratitude and like being grateful for, you know, things we, we have, you know, on one of my diets, I remember I started coming up with these sort of like 
subconsciously coming up with these little exercises or tools to help me sort of just navigate the, you know, 18 hour days of sitting there by myself. And one of them, I, when my mind would start kind of running off and I could catch it, I would just think like with each breath, each moment and each day, I'm grateful for what I, what I have and where I am. And I would just think of like, I have warm socks and my feet are warm and I'm like in a beautiful forest and the temperature and it's sunny today, you know, just like those little simple things that we can be grateful for start to started to help me shift that, like, you know, happiness to being more internally self-generated than the more external things. I wonder if what you sort of, if you have anything like that, that sort of helped you along the way practices or tools or anything. I mean, like 10 years ago, I, I, um, I was sleeping on people's floors and couches and I didn't have any money at all. I had negative money. (laughs) (laughs) I said literally negative money. And I was just scraping together to change so that I could go to Burger King and get the two euro value meal, um, you know, before I became veg and yeah. And in that moment I started to you know, I got, I bought the secret and I was like, okay, let's check this out. And, you know, it's just a little bit cheesy now and cliche and whatever, but there was something in there that stuck with me. And it was this idea of like how to feel grateful for what you have. So I would sit in my closet and start to pray and meditate a little bit. And there was this one time that I will never forget because I feel like it's really the spark of the change of my life where I really, truly, truly, truly didn't have much from a material standpoint at all but I really felt grateful. Like, and I, and, I, and I don't mean it in a way of, you know, a lot of people throw that term around as well, right? Like, oh, I'm so grateful for the day and whatever. Mm. But that's like, but there was this feeling that like overtook my entire body. And I felt like it just opened up like something. It was, just, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever felt in my life. And I feel like it was one of the only times actually where I've ever felt like really what gratitude is. Mm. And from having that experience, like from that moment forward, my life just went like on an uphill, like amazing journey. Because wow. I feel, and, and I feel like it's really a foundational point of that journey is this the ability to feel grateful for what I had. Mm-hmm. And um, even if you don't have much, there's still a lot that you have to feel grateful for. I mean, just life itself, like you boil yeah. it down to that. Like, even if you have the most challenging life of all time, like, what is this experience? Like, how are we here? Like yeah. in the middle of space, floating on this ball that's amazing, like perfect distance from the sun and the moon <laughs> yeah. and everything. Like we're just here, like floating, you know, like I don't want to brag or anything, but I'm in Costa Rica right now. It's awesome. Like I'm just yeah. here, like amazed at like life. Yeah. How do we have this experience? You know, and, and, and when I'm in the city, to be able to breathe, to be able to feel, to be able to feel love, to be able to feel pain. Just to just to be a being that's able to feel and exist is just so much to be grateful for, and that alone, you know. Yeah. Forget about the house, the car, all that stuff. Just just this being yeah. and being grateful for that is such a great place to start. And mm-hmm. um, it's hard. It was hard. It took me a lot of those meditation days in the closet to mm-hmm. really like, you know, because the mind would come in like, ah, oh, but you don't yeah. have anything. Like, yeah. how? Why are you being grateful? Think about all these other people who have way more than you. Like, ah, you shouldn't be grateful at all. It just comes in and tries to sabotage us. Yeah. But once you can really get past all that and feel truly, really grateful for what we have, um, yeah, it just sends out some crazy vibrations and something something happens. I don't know what it is, (laughs) but something. 
thing happens and it's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I'm smiling here, just like listening to you, you know, talk about it in that way. Cause I have had similar experiences and I, I feel the same. It's like, wow, I exist in the world right now, you know? And it's just like all the t- time that the earth and the sun have existed and like, you know, humanity's just been around for a tiny bit of that. And like all the people that had to get together to make babies for me to exist like thousands of years down the line. And it's like, now I'm here and it's sunny out and it's like, wow, that's so insane. <laughs> you get yeah, to taste food and like, you know, have just experienced, like you said, everything like the bad, the good, the challenges, the happy stuff. Like it's, it is, uh, you know, it is hard to get to that place, but it's, it's true. And it's there. It's the, the opportunity is there for everyone. Sure. Um, yeah, one of the other pieces I kind of wanted to chat about, um, you know, from the film was the conversations that you had with your father in in the film. I thought that was such an interesting, you know, dynamic to to bring in and tie throughout the film. Um, you know, a huge part of my work uh, the last few years, which I didn't really expect, was like exploring my relationship with my father and in in masculinity as well and. Um, you know, finding balance there, finding my voice in that relationship. And, and, you know, that, that, that could be with my mom or with loved ones or partners, all that stuff, all those really intimate relationships, I feel like are just like really powerful places for, you know, learning lessons and growth and, and, um, and practice. But uh, yeah, I was curious to know what that process was like for you in the film and beyond, you know, um, having that dialogue with your dad in the film is, is pretty potent. Yeah. I say this on every like interview thing that I do, but I just, I love it so much because it's really the reason why we put that in the film. You know, it's Ramdas saying, uh, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family and then you'll really see what things you need to work on still. And, um, that's why we put it in there because it's quite easy to go to India, go to Nepal, Peru, wherever, leave your environment, feel great. Like, oh, this is, I feel amazing. I'm in peace. I'm quiet. This is great. But then you go back to your normal life and you're with your loved ones and your parents and whoever, and this thing comes up again, these old triggers, these old patterns that come up. And, you know, I, I love my father. He's an amazing guy on one level. And on another level, he's very hard. You know, uh, I grew up playing lots of sports. I was a really good athlete. I would score, you know, three goals and we would win the championship three to two, but I would get like, chastised because i missed two other goals so it was this whole thing of like just nothing was ever enough nothing was ever good enough Mm -hmm. and um not being able to feel not being able to express emotions i think it's a masculine thing unfortunately a distorted masculine thing because the the more men that i talk to about these kind of things we all have the same experience like wow we weren't allowed to feel you know nothing was enough we always had to be more and um I felt that a lot growing up and I've talked to my dad about that. And in that conversation, we just sat at a table for two or three hours and I just told him everything that I've been doing and how I feel about my life and that I had anxiety and whatever. And by opening up to him, he started to open up to me more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like three years ago was the first time that I can ever remember my dad telling me that he loved me. You know, I, mean, I probably did when I was really small, like, one or two or something like that but my i can't remember that's how long it's been so to you know and i had to say it first and even still if i say it he kind of like will like turn his head and like mumble it a little bit 
Right. You know, because he had a really, really hard childhood. Like I've, I haven't actually heard of anyone having a more difficult one. Mm. Um, so the, I understand why he's difficult, why he's tough and why he's really strong and why he builds these layers to protect himself from feeling because he's got a lot of difficult things in there that he needs to feel that he hasn't felt yet. And I have a lot of compassion for that because I had a lot of difficult things in myself that I had to learn how to break through and I had to sit with and feel. And it's very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of courage um, and bravery to do that kind of thing. And I don't mean it like, oh, I'm courageous and brave or something like that. But I mean, in general, like Mm -hmm. it takes that to to really to do it. And and I think that that's where there is uh, this distorted masculinity. Um, and I think that it comes out with a lot of men in their relationship with their fathers. And, um, and just, you know, that's probably the thing I get the most messages about on social media and emails mm-hmm. and stuff. It's just like, hey, I have a really similar relationship with my father. I, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to deal with it. Like, what do I, how do I talk to him? You know, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's challenging, but it's worth it. You know, and, and for me, it was just about being open and sharing. Mm-hmm. And just slowly, baby steps, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and just sharing and being open. I feel like the more I open up to him, slowly, 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 the more he's kind of opening up to me, and our relationship's growing and getting better. And he still crosses my boundaries all the time, but now I know how to like put up this little fence. Yeah. Like, hey, that's that's not cool. You know, I don't yeah. want to talk about this anymore. Let's talk about something different. Mm-hmm. And just learning that, you know, and it just happens. It just happens over time, and. If you wanted to, and if you put the work in, yeah. But I think it's uh, those relationships. We're here for a reason, you know. We're in our family situation for a reason. We have the parents we have for some kind of reason. That mm-hmm. um, I think more as I get older, um, I'm starting to really understand more and more what that reason is, and um, and you know, healing things in my family. You know, maybe my father and his father didn't speak very much before my grandfather passed away and the same with his father and his father. So there's this thing going on and I don't want that to happen. You know, I want to break this cycle. Yeah. I want to have a, as good of a relationship with my father as I can. And it's challenging for sure. But, you know, I think, you know, it's important. It's really important for our generation of men and women to stop the, the, the genetic, you know, trend that's mm-hmm. been going on through our ancestors and through our situation, we have the opportunity to, to stop it yeah. and to set something else up going forward. If we have the, the ability to step into that power and to step into that space and to really work on our stuff, mm-hmm. and go into the suffering that we have so that we can relieve it, be present, connect with each other, connect with nature. These are all the ways that we can really, really change the future. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. And I think it's, it is such an opportunity you know, the more this conversation is opened up, the, you know, what the world is teaching us these days with what's going on, there's definitely more and more of an opportunity for, and I think for like younger people too, like I feel, you know, I don't have kids yet either and I'm planning to, but I feel so lucky I've been able to do a lot of this work before I've had a kid so that, you know, that generation can be more healed. And like my hope and goal is that more people that are younger getting into this stuff, exploring these things, you know, learning about themselves are able to make those changes earlier in their lives and, and really affect that generationally. Like you just said, yeah, there's a, there's a cool opportunity for that right now. For sure. Yeah. I don't have kids either. And I think, um, 
I'm glad that I don't super glad at this point, you know, because I, I needed to do these things, I think before I was ready to be able to take that, to be able to take that next step. Yeah. So yeah, let's see. I don't know what will happen. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Well, it's uh, one of those things that it's hard to control, right? <laughs> the universe yeah. will bring what it will. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, on the, on the sort of point of like the, you know, the masculinity and men's stuff, I'm curious if you've ever had experiences with like men's groups or, or retreats or anything like that on that side of things. No, I've never done any men's groups. I've never done any retreats that were just for men, mm-hmm. but I've thought about it. I've thought about like doing some circles online and some zoom calls, maybe setting something up and doing a, uh, a weekly chat or a monthly chat or something like that. Cause I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking, I've been thinking about actually starting something. Um, but I haven't done it yet, but I think I might. Yeah. I think that'd be awesome. I think, you know, with what you've shared and the vulnerability you've put out there, you know, like you said, you get a lot of messages about it. It's really inspiring. And it's that sort of courage and bravery that, you know, inspires other people to open up. And I've been in a, a men's group now for a little over a year, and it's just been unbelievable to see the growth and even just being able to hear other men going through hard things and sharing it in a safe place, you know, makes it feel okay, you know, for, for other people to feel the same thing and talk about it. And that alone is just such a healing process. So yeah, I'm sure you could do a lot of, have even more impact with something like that. Yeah, I think I'm going to go for it. Maybe starting in January. Let's see. Cool. Well, I think that's a good spot to leave it. But yeah, thanks so much again for the time and and for making the film. For everyone listening, I definitely highly recommend going and renting or buying Chasing the Present. And um, yeah, it's it's really great. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. And um, yeah, if anybody's interested, they can reach out to me directly. I respond to most of the messages it's james.sebastiano on instagram or chasing the present film is on itunes and vimeo and a bunch of different platforms and um it'll be on gaia and march uh, and and a couple of other cool platforms as well that we're working on deals with so let's see what happens but yeah man thanks for doing what you do super beautiful really nice to talk with you and um i'll look you up the next time i'm in la yeah, definitely. And if I uh, make it down to Costa Rica while you're there, uh, I'll, I'll let you know too. Are you planning on coming out here in the next month? Uh, I don't know. We're, my partner and I are thinking about something like post-Christmas. Yeah. So well, we'll I'm here until the 6th of January. If you if you book something, let me know. We can go <laughs> get sure. a grab a meal or something. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be cool. Awesome. All right. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, man. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.